I dig it. So I have a question for you. I'd like to open with a question. How many of you, here's the deal. You can raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you and make you come up here. I know sometimes you guys don't answer the question because you're like, I'm not going to get, I'm not, anyway, I'm not going to call on you. How many of you would describe yourself as a patient person? I am a patient, I can't put my hand up, patient person. Wow, apparently nine o'clock are a lot more patient than 11 o'clock. I'm not sure why that is. Really, that's it? None of you want to put your hand up? Okay, how many of you would describe your husband as a patient person? Well, there's more hands up for that than there was for actual patient. But anyway, like, good for you. I didn't think anybody would raise their hand on that question. How many of you suffered impatience this morning before you even got to church? Yeah, that's the honest answer. So I don't know why that is. We always seem to get so like turned sideways. Uh, well, we're going to look at a couple of stories that are woven together in the scriptures. Uh, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to wait on God. And when we talk about waiting, um, I want to kind of use some words interchangeably. Waiting, and oftentimes waiting is sort of a wilderness season for us. And the question is, how do we wander through a wilderness? How do we uh, go through seasons of waiting and still allow God to do what God wants to do in our lives? Uh, we're going to look at a passage from Luke. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Luke, we're actually going to be on page 866 in your Bibles. And we're not going to put the scripture on the screen because I made a mistake and gave them the wrong uh, version. It just confuses people. So Meg's going to read the story. So if you'll welcome Meg up to the stage. This is my lovely wife, Meg. Yeah. Woo! I can't, hoot, Hi, everyone. I can't hoot that high. <laughs> love you. What? <laughs> well, they're going, woo, I can't do that. So uh, Meg's going to read the story for you while she's uh, getting ready to read the story. Again, we're not going to have it up on the screen, so if you want to read along, grab your Bibles, turn to 866, Bibles under your seat. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Luke 8, 40 through 56. Luke 8, 40 through 56. Uh, and what I want to just encourage you uh, is just to engage your imagination. And I say that a lot, but there's something when you read a story like, some of you are already reading, just wait for me here. Uh, if, you, if you read a story like this and you engage your imagination, uh, you'll begin to feel what the people feel. You, you engage that thing God gives us called empathy. So place yourself in the uh, feet or in the shoes of the people that are in this story, but also just think about uh, the chaos. It says right at the very beginning that the crowds showed up. And uh, when I was thinking about that this morning, I started to think about the, the ancient cities and being in Jerusalem and realizing how small the streets are. A lot of the streets in the old city aren't much wider than this aisle. So imagine Jesus in these narrow, crowded buildings and, and streets, the dust, the heat, and people are doing whatever they can to get to, to Jesus, right? So more people than are in this room are all clamoring to get just a, a touch with Jesus. It would have been in a narrow, confined space, hot, dirty. I just want you to enter into all of that as Meg reads this amazing story. So go ahead. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them all to tell no one what had happened. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Hey, let's pray. Lord, I just pray as we talk about the story, as we uh, sink into your word, that you would speak truth into our hearts. I pray that we would receive a word from you, uh, each one of us in our own particular way. Pray that we would leave different than we came because we've sat in the presence of the living God. Lord, we just thank you that you are active. Thank you that you know us by name, that you know every story that's in this room and you know how to intersect that story in a powerful way just as you did in this story. Lord, I pray that we would receive all that you desire to give to us and that we would be the people that you've called us to be here on this corner. Same. Amen? Amen. So Meg and I have been um, talking about this story a lot over the last few weeks, and it just became very apparent to me that uh, rather than me quoting Meg a lot, I should just come up here and let her speak for herself. Um, but this is a story that's been very meaningful for her, and I just wanted her to be able to share some of that. So uh, I'm just going to ask her a few questions and let her share. So the first question I have is, what is it about... Uh, these two people that grabs your heart? Um, well, the story grabs my heart because uh, of how the people grab Jesus' heart, how, uh, you know, he just extends such compassion in this story. Um, but certainly the people, uh, Jairus, the first, the synagogue leader whose daughter is ill, he is in a desperate situation where he feels powerless. Sure. And we're parents, we have four children, two grandchildren. We've never had a child on death's door, but uh, we've been in some desperate situations. Um, yeah, for sure. I remember the time Robbie fell 15, no, 18 feet from a scaffolding and landed on his shoulder. On cement. Um, yeah, on cement, and he was fine, uh, but we were afraid. We were afraid, like Jairus, and um, we were in a desperate place. And I'm sure some of you, if you're, uh, even if you're not a parent, you've had someone in your life who's been in a um, perilous situation and you've felt powerless. Um, and then the, the woman, I relate to her because I'm a woman, and, um, but uh, her story um, is just, it, it's heartrending how she um, both probably lived with shame within and then shame was heaped on her 
by her community. And I know um, sometimes if a person has an affliction, and this woman had an affliction for 12 years, uh, you start to feel like your body is your enemy, whether it's depression or infertility or cancer, you, you, you can feel like you're imprisoned in your body. And I can relate to that. Yeah. And then both of them are people of faith. They're imperfect. They're people of faith. And in their desperation, they turn to God. And uh, I can relate to that. And I'm sure you can too. A lot of times when um, I visit with people in the hospital or people who are going through um, whatever affliction they're in physically, uh, what I hear commonly is I feel like my body has betrayed me. And uh, so you just got to imagine 12 years of feeling this inner betrayal. Like, I, I, you know, it's just, it's more than we probably at first glance. But uh, one of the things we talked about over the last few weeks is just how devastating this uh, woman's uh, problem would have been, her infirmity. Just, just, why don't you just talk about that just for a few minutes? Sure. So when Doug and I were writing Curtains, and we were talking about Chapter 5, which we're in Week 5 right now, um, he wanted the core of the, um, or the theme of that chapter to be what the destructive effects of shame are. And he thought that highlighting this woman's story, like I said, she had shame heaped on her and had shame within, um, he thought that she was a you know, profound example. And so uh, we talked about Levitical law. If you want to look later at um, Leviticus 15, what it meant exactly for this woman, woman with this particular affliction to be living under Levitical law. We talked about that. I went back to the office where I was writing and I just said, God, just help me get inside um, you know, this woman's heart and this woman's mind and imagine what it would like to be her for a day or for a week. And um, I started sobbing and um, uh, God, I just wrote down some of the things that God revealed to me and I wanna share those to you or with you. So she had this affliction, as we said, for 12 years. It was an affliction of a deeply personal nature, yet it was public knowledge. She was known in her community as being someone who was unclean. This affliction was something that robbed her of her femininity. Modern conveniences were not available to her, so it would have required constant washing of her clothing and her personal items. She was probably impoverished. The text tells us that she spent all of her living on um, medical care only to be disappointed over and over again. She was unemployable uh, because she was unclean who would hire her and who would render any services from her because she was unclean. She was possibly abandoned. There's no mention of family. You know, Jairus goes to Jesus on behalf of his daughter. There's, there's no mention of family for her. And I thought of the, um, the paralytic on the stretcher, how his friends carried him to Jesus. They carried him. There was a crowd. They climbed up on the roof. They lowered him down through the roof so he could be healed by Jesus. And this woman's utterly alone. There's, there's no one around her. She was excluded from worshiping in the synagogue. She couldn't worship in community. Um, her own bed was deemed impure, and anything that she sat on became unclean. Anyone who she touched or anyone who touched anything she sat on had to wash their clothes and bathe, and they were unclean until evening. If she ventured out of her home, she had to be careful not to bump into anyone. She had to yell, unclean, unclean, so people could scatter if she was around. 
Um, people could even throw stones at her if she came too close. And uh, I just wonder if she ever made eye contact with anyone. And uh, she was possibly dying because of the toll this affliction was taking on her life for 12 years. Yeah, the thing I've been thinking about a lot, um, we talked about this Saturday morning actually, um, it's easy to, to miss how inconvenient this would be without modern conveniences. There's no, you know, there's no showers, there's no washing machines, there's no, I mean, everything you have to do is complicated a hundredfold. You have to go get your water to bring it to your house. So it just, you, you have to put yourself in, you know, there's no modern feminine protection, you know, and I think we all know what I'm talking about. It just, so all of that just makes this so much more uh, gruesome and difficult and, and painful for her 12 years of this, always being there. And just the label, unclean, how that would have just created such a, a feeling of unworthiness and it would have become part of her self-talk and, and how she would have, have kind of navigated life. But the story takes this amazing shift and uh, I want you to just talk a little bit about the scandalous nature of her behavior. Yeah, not only was it scandalous, it was illegal, because as I said, she was living under Levitical law. So for her to put herself in a crowd, um, she was putting herself and everyone else in harm's way, because um, if she was discovered, uh, she would face public reprimand and possibly violence um, toward her, and by bumping into anyone, she was making them ceremonial, cer ceremonially unclean, is that the right, right. word? Okay, <laughs> didn't sound the same when I said it out loud. Um, so she was being courageous and she was being deceptive. Um, but this was her chance. And even though everything that she was enduring, she believed in the goodness of God and she was going to not miss her chance. For sure. To position herself before Jesus. Yeah. If you, read through, if you read between the lines in the story, she says, knowing that she couldn't get away with it, she had to kind of confess her, her touching of Jesus. You know, I, I'm not sure in that moment she knew how it was going to go because he's a rabbi. What if he'd been like, what are you doing? Now I'm unclean. Now you're, you know, I mean, it, it just, there had to be a whole lot of uh, conflict in her own spirit, but yet she knew something pretty amazing had happened. So um, you shared with me uh, in my office uh, when we were talking about this, this image of intimacy that I'd never really even seen, uh, but it really touched my heart, and I wanted you to share that with the people. That you see this as just this incredibly intimate moment between the woman and Jesus. Yes, so um, as I was sitting you know, in the office and um, you know, meditating on this with God, I just felt like God gave me this picture uh, we read the account in Luke, but there's also an account in Mark. And in Mark, the woman, it says that the woman could feel in her body being healed. And it also says that Jesus could feel within him um, power going out. And I imagined that as she reached her hand out, there was this intersection of faith and power, like their skin never touched, but in the spiritual realm, there was like this divine intimacy that took place and they both felt it in their body. And I just thought, what would that feel like? It says that she felt um, the, the flow of blood dry up. And I just thought, what would that 
feel like. And then uh, her plan is to slip away, away, right? Because she's there to she have got this. What she wanted. She's there to have this affliction healed, and her plan is to slip away. But Jesus, um, he wants to restore her life. He's about making our life new. And in um, Mark, um, he says, he makes a distinction between her being well and going in peace, which is what Luke says. And in Mark, he says, be healed of your disease. So what he was saying to her is, yes, I've healed your physical affliction, but you are more than your physical reality. And I am restoring you to a whole person. And in front of everyone, her affliction was public. Everyone knew about it. So in front of everyone with whom she's been suffering for years, he declares her clean. And he says, daughter. And when he says daughter, he's saying, your family, you're not alone. You're mine. And he says, be well and go in peace. And he's saying, I am making you whole. And he's saying in front of everyone, she is now clean. Amen. So it was about restoring, yeah, restoring her life, mm -hmm. not just healing her of her affliction. And that daughter phrase is? Yeah. Uh, well, it's the only um, time in the gospels that Jesus refers directly to a woman as daughter. And it's in her. Yeah, uh, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. So um, help us unpack. It's a, it's a great story, uh, but what does it have to do with the study? What does it have to do with the curtain study? We are in a week five of discovering what it looks like to be honest before God and honest before one another to be a church without curtains. But what does this story have to do with curtains? Well, um, I think for her, her, you know, her affliction, especially in the time there was this cause and effect belief. So if you did have some kind of affliction or if someone in your family had uh, some kind of affliction, it was because you sinned or you did something wrong. So, you know, in Jairus' case, if his daughter was dying, it could have been a commonly held belief that, well, either he or his wife had done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think when um, something happens to us or we have a condition, we think that um, we did something wrong. We think that God doesn't love us. And I, um, just this morning, I was reminded, uh, you know, as I was getting ready for church, something happened to me when I was in my 30s. And uh, I was so angry with God, and I was so brokenhearted. And I remember saying to God, I'm not going anywhere, um, but I don't want to talk to you and I don't wanna look at you. So thankfully, he still loves me, <laughs> and he puts up with my little tantrums. Um, but it took me about two years to work through that with God. Um, so in effect, I was putting up a curtain. I was saying, you know, okay, I'm gonna go to church on Sunday, I'm gonna read my Bible, but this part of my heart, you're not welcome in this part of my heart because I can't trust you with this part of my heart which was not true, it was you know, a lie that I was um, believing and telling myself, but that's, that's how we can put up curtains. Great. That makes sense? It makes perfect sense. <laughs> I think there's a self-talk that comes, and so even we talk about the ancient world and this cause and effect 
sort of mentality that they had, but even a woman who struggled with fertility, we see that throughout the Bible that that's always like a, a curse, right? That it's a bigger deal. That became a big part of even whether or not you were considered really a woman, whether or not, and there's good odds um, medically that that was part of her journey. Not only would she have probably been infertile, but she wouldn't have been able to, by law, be intimate with a man. She probably didn't have a husband because of all the inconvenience of that. So her self-talk would have been pretty shaming. Mm -hmm. And remember, shame is a voice that says, you are bad, different than having any kind of conviction that says you did something bad, which can be good because it leads us towards repentance. But there's a big difference between doing something bad and realizing it and saying you are bad. And so just she would have struggled with that. And most likely, it would have been a place where she would have gone into hiding and just in the midst of that shame. So uh, let's thank Meg for coming up here. Thank you, babe. Thank you. Did awesome. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you still have your Bibles open, to turn to Psalm 37, Psalm 37. Um, this is a psalm that's written by David. Uh, many of you know uh, who David is, but he, uh, just to give you a little bit of a, a backstory here, David uh, was anointed to be the successor to King Saul, and uh, you would think that's great, and it was great, except for there was this long period of time between him being anointed and him actually becoming king. And during that time, Saul becomes jealous and begins to uh, try to kill David. And so David becomes sort of a fugitive, a, an outlaw to, the, to, to, to Saul, and, and he ends up going into hiding. And for 10 years, David had to sort of live this life of an outlaw. He had to live in caves and run from God. And, and it's easy for us to read the story, right? It's easy for me to talk about how long did that take about? 30 seconds of conversation, but, but put yourself in David's shoes for 10 years, knowing that God had already given you this, this positional authority, knowing that God was going to do something. And actually, if you go back and you read the story, more than once, God delivers in some sort of way Saul into David's hands as a test to see if David's going to take matters into his own hands or is he going to wait on God's timing. Both cases, he allows Saul to live. And, and I think to myself, I don't know that I would have had that kind of patience. I probably would have read the signs and said, well, he's here. I should take him. That's what David's men were even saying. This is your moment to take the, take the throne. But there's this beautiful picture of waiting. And what I want you to just hear in all that is David knew something about waiting and what God does in the season of waiting. So by the time he writes Psalm 37, uh, what we know to be true is that he's old by now. And he is looking back on his life. I picture him just the gray hair sitting at his desk and writing this psalm. And he's writing it to you, to me, to his, to his sons, to his family. And saying, this is what it's like to navigate seasons of waiting, to navigate through wilderness periods. This is what it's like. This is how you ought to behave, for lack of a better word, when you are in a season of wilderness and having to wait on God. So that's the context of Psalm 37. And David writes these words. He says, do not fret because of those who are evil or evil uh, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him and, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Verse seven says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways and when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord 
will inherit the land. So from these nine verses, what we're going to do in these last few minutes is we're going to pull out five precepts. Some of you probably aren't exactly aware of what a precept is, but a precept is different than a law. Like you think about the, the Ten Commandments, these are rules, right? But a precept is more of a rule of life. It's a way of responding to situations that will regulate your behavior or your thought. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. If you can put biblical precepts into your life, when you encounter particular situations, those precepts serve to regulate how you are going to behave in those moments, how you are to think about them, how you are to respond to them. So we have five precepts that come out of this one psalm, five ways of responding, five ways of thinking, five ways of behaving in seasons of waiting or wilderness season, five precepts. And the first precept says what? In the very beginning, it says, do not fret. Now, the cool thing is if you ever, I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes just pull up a passage of scripture and then, and you can do this easily electronically uh, in like Bible Hub or any of those, and then do what they call a parallel. Look at it in all the different translations. Whenever you come across a word that is translated a whole bunch of different ways, you can know right away that this is a difficult word to say in English. We don't have one word in English that means the same as this word. And so if you do this parallel with this opening verse of, of Psalm 37, you're going to see this, it's going to say, do not fret, or another translation says, do not worry. One says, do not get agitated. One says, do not be annoyed. One says, do not be angry. And one says, do not be preoccupied. Crazy, huh? And then the, the cool thing is the word actually means burn or smolder. And I actually like that word better. It's because it's such a good image for me, that, that slow burn that's inside of you. You know, you're waiting and you don't like the waiting. You're in a wilderness season and there's this internal smoldering. It actually means to kindle a fire, right? So there's this, this kindling, this smoldering, this slow, steady burn that's inside of us. And, and we probably can all relate to that in some sort of way when you have that internal thing. And while it's burning, you're, you're worrying and you're agitated and you're annoyed and you're angry you fret. They all work, but I love the image of the slow burn because it just, for me, I can totally relate to it. Now, I say this all the time, right? No one talks to you more than you, so you better pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. And so this becomes a place for application. Pay attention to the slow burn. Pay attention. Are you meditating on this? Are you fretting over the situation? Are you, are you in a place where it's just creating all of this tension? So if you look at this Psalm, verse one, do not fret. Verse seven, do not fret. Verse eight, do not fret. Apparently, David wants us to realize that this idea of burning, fretting, worrying, being agitated, all go against our ability to receive all that God has for us in seasons of waiting. Right? There is an enemy of your soul, and he wants to get you off track. He wants to get you fretting over the season that you're in, that you're waiting. Right? So, so you have to be careful. Don't give credence to that voice that's going over and over the same thing. Right? And so one of the things that will happen is, is in a season of waiting, one of the voices will be, and we talked about this with a woman, is if, if you just were a better Christian, this wouldn't happen to you. If you just knew how to pray better, then you could fix this. If you just knew, read your Bible more, then this wouldn't have happened. If you just hadn't partied as much in college, then you wouldn't be having these problems now, right? And, and here's what I want you to hear. 
You may need to pray more. I do. You may need to read your Bible more. I do. But we need to be careful not to live in a cause and effect sort of mentality where everything that's happening to us is because we didn't do something right because that will put you on this treadmill of doing, 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 doing. And sometimes things happen because of our, our behaviors, but sometimes God is taking you through a season because he is shaping your character because he has something he wants to teach you. And it's important that we learn how to do that. But the biggest thing I want you to hear, the scripture is clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you are having condemning thoughts, that is not the spirit of God. When you hear, I am not a good, fill in the blank, that is not the spirit of God. God may convict you of, of something you need to do or not do, and that's a good thing, and, and it can lead to repentance, and, and repentance is a beautiful journey of, of growing, but when you hear something, a voice in your head, whether it's your voice, the, the evil one's voice, it tells you you are less than, that is not the spirit of God. So David says, in seasons of waiting, and seasons of difficulty, don't fret, don't allow it to burn, don't worry, don't be agitated, don't be annoyed, don't get angry. Look, I, I am a grouchy person when things are not going the way I want them to go in the timing that I want them to go in, right? So don't do that, don't become, become preoccupied. And then it says, trust in the Lord and do good. So Jesus says to the woman, your faith has made you well. When Jairus, they come and they talk to Jairus and they say, hey, uh, don't bother him anymore. Your daughter is dead, right? And you got to imagine that moment. Like this, this scene took more than 10 seconds, right? We can read it pretty fast, but you got to believe Jairus is like, you're kidding me. We stopped for this unclean woman and now my daughter is dead. If we just hadn't stopped, if we'd have just kept moving, if the crowds had gotten out of the way, right? He could have had all kinds of agitation in his spirit because Jesus is getting there. But Jesus looks at him and says what he says, right? Don't be afraid. Just believe. So there is this connection between trust and belief that helps us to navigate seasons of difficulty, wandering through the wilderness, waiting for God to show up, that we need to actually make a conscious decision to trust and to believe. So what is, what is faith? Faith is this belief in things that are unseen. It's, it's a belief in, in what is going to happen. It's having a clear picture that God is going to do something. It's, it's having a vision of all of that and then being willing to say, I am choosing to believe that God has something better for me as I move through this season. But it's a conscious choice to, to trust and to have faith. And at the same time, it's a conscious choice not to take matters into your own hands. Think about David. And when Saul came, he didn't take matters into his own hands. But we're more likely to take matters into our own hands when we're in seasons of waiting by doing what I call self-medicating. We find all kinds of ways to alleviate the agitation, the slow burn that's happening within us by turning to things that we shouldn't turn to. We overeat. We have a drink to take the edge off. We got to get to, uh, you know, outside to get that smoke so that we can just relax. We have all kinds of vices and ways that we lean into to say, this is, this is what I need in order to feel better about where I am. We do things that will dull our minds. We turn to images on a computer screen because it distracts us. We bend watch some stupid show for 17 hours straight because it just distracts our mind. We find all kinds of ways to self-medicate. And when you self-medicate, you miss out on the grace that God has for you. 
right? God is doing a work in the season of waiting, and when you take matters into your own hand, you miss out on the very thing that God wants to do. You miss out on the grace that God has for you. Those who cling to worthless idols, right? Forfeit is what the scriptures say, the grace that God has for them. So you got to not to let the slow burn happen. Trust in the Lord. And then it says, take delight in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord. And really, uh, I love this. This is just, a, a, to me, a picture of, of worship. It's a picture of meditation. It's a picture of remembering who God is. Study the character of God that we see in the scriptures. Allow yourself more and more to know who God is. Psalm 26 says, your steadfast love is before my eyes and then I will walk in faithfulness. The more I see how much you love me, the more I see your character, the more I know who you are, the more I can trust that this season of waiting that I'm going through is for my benefit, right? This is one of the primary reasons for the weekend experience. This is why it's so important that you make the weekend a priority is because when we sit in the room and we sing words together, worms of affirmation, when we sing, you know my name, Right? Those are words to help us to know that God loves us, he sees us, he cares for us. Those worship songs have a way of reorienting you back towards God. I would encourage you, find out who it is that touches your heart in worship and always have them nearby on your playlist for those seasons when you are starting to burn, right? when you're starting to fret and say, I just, I just need to listen to some worship music. And you know what? The worship music you listen to might be different than the worship music that you listen to and the worship music, but find that, that one that really ministers to you and helps to, as Norflet has taught us, to reorientate you or to indoctrinate you to the goodness and the beauty of God. Take delight in God, right? And then verse five says, commit your ways to the Lord. And this is simply putting a stake in the ground, right? It's saying, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord, right? It's the stake in the ground. It's this is who I am, and I am not going to waver to the left or the right. You have to make a commitment because in seasons of difficulty, it's easy to wander off the path. It's easy to say, this isn't working, so I'm going to try anything or something else. So put a stake in the ground and commit your ways to the Lord. And then the fifth precept, which really is the, the key that unhinges all of them, is number seven. Or in verse seven, number five, says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's an easy one. <laughs> Not so much. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. You know, another way of saying this, which is how I've been saying it to myself this week, is hush your inner life. Hush your inner life. Now, I want to be really sensitive to this one. Uh, I think this is hard, but I also think it's worth fighting for. This is counter culture. So one of the things uh, that has happened over the last really four or five years, we've been doing this thing called Lent. Uh, we stole it, but we're still doing it. Uh, and the idea is uh, for two hours, uh, Meg and I show up in the chapel. You don't have to come to the chapel to do this, but from 6.30 to 8.30, we sit in the chapel. People come and go. It's very quiet. There's just soft music playing, some candles burning, uh, and we sit quietly before the Lord. And sometimes people ask us to pray for him, and we pray for him, but most of the time, it is just a quiet moment. And I can tell you, every year, uh, we go into it with a grumbling spirit. I mean, we know we're supposed to do it. We're like, ugh. 
setting our alarms, getting over there, opening the church. We're going to be in there for two hours. I go into like, man, I got a lot of things to do, two hours every day. But I can tell you, year after year, it is the most healthy I ever feel. Now, I should just go in there two hours every day for the rest of my life because it does so much for me, but I'm not, I'm just too stubborn, I guess. I don't know why I don't do that. So pray for me that I do it. But what's my point? My point is we carve out time to hush our spirit. Sometimes it takes me over the, more than the first hour just to get where I can be quiet enough where I can even hear God, right? And I have to be careful not to read another book, right? Or, or write out another sermon. Like I really am supposed to go in there and be quiet before the Lord. And it's a hard thing to do. Carve out time to sit quietly with God. Hush your inner spirit. It is so hard to do. Some of you are already saying, I can't. If I don't get to work, someone's going to out hustle me. Somebody's going to out earn me. And when you say that to yourself, you just need to realize who is your provider? Is God your provider or are you your best provider? When you carve out the time, I guarantee you, God is going to multiply your time. God is going to bless it. But we, as a people in a hurried society, need to learn to hush our inner spirit. We need to hush our inner lives and we need to spend time with God, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And what I want you to hear is you cannot avoid the slow burn You cannot really put your full trust in God. You won't take delight in God and you won't commit to God unless you learn this fifth precept to be still with the Lord and to wait patiently for him. One of my favorite dudes is Charles Spurgeon. I love reading Spurgeon's sermons, but he says these words. He says, a silent tongue not only shows a wise head, but a holy heart. I should read that three or four times a day. Be quiet, hush, wait for me. It's a beautiful picture. When we quiet ourselves and we get still, Jesus shows up and he he speaks into the waiting and he speaks into the difficulty. And the more we can realize that God is in the waiting, the better off we're gonna be. David had to wait because that's where his character was forged in order to carry the weight of the ministry. Joseph had to wait because that's where his character was forged in order to carry the weight of the ministry that God has for him. Sometimes God is taking you through seasons of waiting and difficulty because he is forging your character so that your character is strong enough to carry the very thing he's asking of you. Don't self-medicate. Don't short-circuit what God is doing. Wait on God and take the words that he gives to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe that God is up to something. And I know, I mean, even as I put this talk together, I know that some of you are dealing with unbelievable circumstances. Circumstances that are wrecking you. And I'm just asking you, don't be afraid. Just believe. And we're gonna move to communion And uh, one of the things I love about communion is just that intentionality of remembering. Jesus said, every time you do this, remember me. Why do we need to stop and remember? Because in our humanness, we tend to forget. We tend to take it for granted. So two things happen when we take communion. One is you're to just examine yourself. So ask yourself, even before the elements go out, where is the slow burn happening? What's keeping you up at night? What's the imaginary conversation that just keeps going and going that you can't seem to put aside? Just leave it here today. Just leave it. 
Just give it back to God. Don't be afraid. Just believe that God is doing something amazing in your life. And then just think about all that Jesus has done for you, his body broken, his blood shed, so that you could be intimate with the Father the way Meg was talking about. It's a beautiful picture. So I'm gonna ask the servers to come and they're gonna hand it out. And this is for anyone, if you are a member or not a member, as long as you know Jesus, we would love for you to take part in this communion uh, service. And they're gonna pass out the elements. I'm just encouraging you to hold on to them and then I will come up in just a minute and we will take them together.
scriptures tell us that on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, knowing everything that was going to happen, knowing every whip that he was going to take, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. same way he took the cup, Elijah's cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Every time you drink it, remember me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember, not just mentally, but deep in our souls, the love of the Son, the love of the Father, to go to such lengths to rescue us from our depravity. Lord, help us to remember. Lord, help us never to come to the table as a ritual, as just a thing that we do. May we remember the power of the resurrection. Your body and your blood shed for me. Your body and your blood shed for each one of us. Amen. We uh, like to sing after we take communion to John. Lord, I pray that that truth would just ring true throughout the week as we journey with you. I pray that we would carve out time to be still in your presence, that we would wait on you patiently, that we would know that you see us, that you know us, that what you have for us is far better than anything we have for ourselves. Amen. Hey, on your way out, they're going to have uh, the benevolent offering, and we just use that to uh, take care of the body and any of their needs. So if you can give to that, that would be great. We have people down here that would love to pray with you. If there's anything pressing that you need, we'd love to be with you. God bless. If I didn't know what it hurt like to be broken And how would I know what it feels like to be whole If I didn't know what it cuts like to be rejected Then I wouldn't know the joy of coming home Maybe it's okay